0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. So Jake, as I was saying, Delaware loses to Villanova 42-21. They make it into the playoffs. They get a really tough draw in the first round. Number six, ranked James Madison. They go down to Harrisonburg. It's 20-6. Delaware's in this game. At one point, it was 12-6. to The Blue Hen's defense gets four stops down the stretch to keep it at a two-touchdown deficit. The offense, throughout the entire afternoon, unable to mount anything. And Delaware's season ends with a first-round playoff appearance, but a short-lived playoff appearance at that.
1: Yeah, it was quite the game because there were a bunch of moments where you thought that this can be Delaware's time, that this can be Delaware's drive. There was one um, where Delaware marched downfield and got into Frank Rago territory, and you were like, all right, turning point. Let's get moving. But then we just kind of hit this wall that is JMU. They're a talented team. They probably deserve to be rated higher than they were this year. Yeah. And— do I think the Blue Hens fought? Yes. Did they fight well? No. We look like, like you know those real traditional scenes of a big brother, little brother, where the little brother's really trying to swing, and the big brother's just putting his hand down, blocking him? You can't do that.
0: And that's James Madison. That's a team that this weekend will match up against the eighth-seeded Colgate team up in New York on the road. Then after that, if the seeds hold, they'll have a trip to Fargo, likely to face the number one ranked team in the country, North Dakota State. But a James Madison team that maybe is not as good as they have been in the past couple of seasons where they've made the national championship game. But I think in both of our opinions, as we've discussed the CAA through the course of the season, they're the best team in this conference still. They had two conference losses, one of them a kind of a fluky loss against New Hampshire where they turned the ball over four times. The other, a three-point loss to Elon back when the Phoenix had starting quarterback Davis Cheek, and their starting running back Malcolm Summers. So a very good James Madison team that Delaware What Umpa gets. But six points in a playoff game. That's not gonna get it done. Jake, as you were in the studio and monitoring the game, what did you find with the Blue hens offense? What prevented them from getting going the way that we've seen in a couple weeks prior?
1: Pat Kehoe, he didn't look good. yeah, frankly, he looked he looked hurt. He was he is hurt, mm-hmm. but he really showed it that game. Uh, we talked about how he was playing with that MCL injury. ACL. Uh, an ACL injury. Partially torn ACL. Uh, concussion protocol here and there after the New Hampshire game, I believe. The
0: ACL is is dates back to a hit in the New Hampshire game. The concussion was the hit against Villanova that knocked him out. Right. He left the Villanova game be- purely because of the concussion, and that's what kept him out of practice Tuesday, but then he practiced Wednesday and Thursday leading up to the game.
1: He looked hurt. He just looked bad, slow. He wasn't the Pat Kehoe that we saw during Towson. He wasn't the Pat Kehoe that we saw at all, period. Um, so I think that's the biggest reason. Um, obviously, the JMU defense didn't help with any of that. I, against a more mediocre team, Pat Kehoe might have purport, probably would have performed better. But with the inability to go to the run because that JMU defense was as good as kind of advertised, a lot of it fell on Pat Kehoe, and he was hurt.
0: And And to me, you have to go into this game knowing that he's limited, and I think – Delaware's coaches to get a little bit of that blame, too, for not adjusting. A lot of times, Pacquiao in this game was dropping back five or seven step drops with typical five or six-man protection, waiting for these long developing routes to come open down the field. And he is not, with his current health level, whatever you want to say, even maybe just him as a quarterback in general, he, at that point in the season, not able to get outside the pocket. He's not able to slide inside the pocket and extend the play and keep his eyes downfield, If JMU gets any type of pressure, he he was going to go down or he was going to have to force the ball out, and that's something that Danny Rocco talked about Wednesday when he addressed the media, and that James Madison, from what Delaware saw of their defense, was not keeping Lane integrity. They told all of their guys to just go after Pat Kehoe no matter what because we don't think he'll be able to step up and get outside the pocket. And I think as Delaware, you got to adjust and get the ball out of his hand a little bit quicker. I also think first and second down they could have done a better job of being a little bit more aggressive. They were pinned deep, especially in the first half. Their starting field position was their own 19. But they go three and out, six consecutive drives to start this game. And it was a predictable formula, especially when they were backed up inside their own territory, of first and second down inside runs, knowing that you don't have your bell cow running back in Kanai Kane, and then third and long throws with Pat Kehoe with these long developing routes where he's not having time to deliver the ball because he can't move himself in or outside or around the pocket. So I didn't see the adjustment there from Delaware's coaching staff, knowing Kehoe's limited, knowing you don't have Kanai Kane. Yes, the opponent's really good, but you've got to take some chances and change things up if you're going to hang with a team like JMU that we all acknowledge is the more talented team.
1: I think they – I don't want to say this because I've said both sides of the coin numerous times, but I don't think that you show Walker enough. Especially, no, he didn't have a catch. Yeah, I don't think that you show Walker enough. And he had the one
0: end-around play for 38 yards, yeah. and he did not – Catch the ball once, and yeah. he had to have less
1: than three targets. There were plenty of times where I said they, they're trying to force the Joe Walker too much, but this game they didn't use him enough, and I think Delaware's one of their big storylines is they couldn't find that Joe Walker happy medium because I would rather you overuse Joe Walker than underuse Joe Walker because Especially of his when, talent.
0: When you look around at your skill guys and your quarterbacks banged up, you're starting running backs out. Yeah, what you know? Charles Scarf had one catch in this game, I think maybe two. Vinnie Papali had a few targets was did not really get anything going like look look to the guy who you know a whole team every all the time everybody around the team wants to hail how high his yards per catch, or yards per reception is maybe it's cuz he didn't catch the ball a whole lot cuz they they don't get it to him and like that's a perfect opportunity and you watch what James Madison does spreading the field out get the ball out in his hands on the outside get it to him quick screens bubble screens RPOs, get the ball outside to Walker, and if he's working one-on-one, one-on-two with defensive backs in the open field, I'll take my chances with that. I'll take Joe Walker in that matchup.
1: Yeah, the found, and I, when I was watching the game, it was really a different perspective because it's cool. I heard you because it comes to our station instantly. I hear from you to me in the studio instantly, and then the delay puts it out to all the listeners. Right, a couple seconds. But the stream was two plays behind. So when you called out a play, I wrote it down. And I was like, all right, two plays from now, like with the Ray Jones targeting. I was like, two plays from now,
0: I need to watch Ray Jones is going to hit
1: the quarterback. <laughs> What's going on? And there was a play that you called out on the offensive end where they ran the end around to Joe Walker. And I was like, all right, it's about to happen. And it wasn't even a good play. Like they ran it. <laughs> and it was kind of just like a. All right, Joe Walker got the ball, and he did all the work. Like, that one didn't even look like a strong play. And after that, I was like, oh, this can't be good gameplay-wise. Because you mentioned it. We were down our starting running back. Mm-hmm. What better reason to give the ball to Joe Walker or Vinny Papali anyone? We saw how end arounds worked in the beginning of the season. Last year, they finally started to use him. Vinny Papali had a massive end-around against Richmond. So mm-hmm. did Jamie Jarman, Jarman. Jarman was big with that. Jarman was the first one. And then Papali answered almost on this very next play. Mm-hmm. They didn't. Game plan properly, and it's a tough excuse, not or a tough reason, why Delaware lost. Because game planning, but when you play James Madison, you have to know what you're doing.
0: You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on ninety-one point three WVUD. How about that defense for Delaware? I thought that I was really impressed by their performance. They hold James Madison to twenty points. JMU came into the game averaging thirty-six points per game, one of the better off, second best offense by that metric, only behind Towson in the CAA a defense that the week before gave up 42 points to Villanova. They made some adjustments. You saw a little bit more of a four-down front a lot of the time in the game. They were aggressive with the safety Nasir Adderley coming up toward the line of scrimmage. That was something that Mike Houston, James Madison's head coach, noted after the game, saying that's kind of where we adjusted to late in the first half, early second half, going to more of an aerial attack, more of a quick pass because they were taking away the run with Adderley in the box. Overall, I was impressed with the defense what did you see with them against JMU?
1: I liked it a lot. Yeah, I thought they really did put up a fight. Uh, it's unfortunate that the offense couldn't help them out, and I think that's been the tail of the tape for a bunch of games this year, uh, URI being the first prime example where the defense did manageable against Juwan right. Lawson. And they but, gave
0: up 14 points to, Jet- to Rhode yeah, Island's offense. But nothing
1: brutal. Yeah, um, 14 points You should you should win. You should win. On average, you should win your games. I thought that the linebacker core kind of was a late bloom this game where they really started to get their foot down against that JMU offensive line a little too late because Reader started to penetrate. Even Charles Bell started to have a few good— Bell had a good game. Yeah, a few good uh, rushes through the tackles. But it was just too late. I thought the defense played great. It's sad that a lot of defensive players are now graduating. We're going to talk about that later in the show. But a good— End of uh, the tail, of tape for the Blue Hens. The defense played well and a good way to end the year.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. Delaware basketball on the men's side off to a great start, 5-2 and two to begin the season. Until Monday, though, Jake, to me it felt a little empty. You had the win against Wilmington. You had a win against Chestnut Hill College, another Division II team. Monday night, it started to feel real. A close 75-71 win against Louisiana Tech. In this game, Delaware goes with their starting five. For much of it, these guys playing 36-plus minutes apiece, and they hold on for a win down the stretch. You were on the call for WVUD with Parker Kerrigan. Your thoughts, your takeaways from Monday night's big-time performance.
1: They looked really good. This is a team without Ryan Allen. They're probably best scorer. Yeah, at least so we thought coming into this season. You're missing Ryan Allen, and you're beating these competitive teams. I think they finally found their footing and I think it comes to that bench. Their starters played a large majority of the game, but you can see Inglesby, whether it's because it's pre-CAA play or not, is more comfortable pulling a few different names of the bench. The first two being that he started two freshmen, Ithiel Horton and Matt Verretto. And when they came out on the starting lineup, I turned to Parker and I was like, what is Coach Inglesby doing? This is a competitive team. This isn't no Chestnut Hill. This is Louisiana Tech. These are This is a good basketball team. And they surpassed expectations. I think Ithiel Horton, way too early, heavy speculation, could easily take home the CAA Rookie of the Year title for the third straight year for the Blue Hens. Um, overall – And I love Matt Verreto on this team. Yeah, he, he plays a weird role on this team. He's not a four. He's not a three. He's <laughs> not a five. Oh, well, he's definitely not a five. He's just – there, but he plays.
0: Do he plays hard? He, needs he can a shoot body. a little bit.
1: Yeah, he needs a. He is good enough to bring a body on you. And frankly, with a team that has scores right. as you got to respect talented them. as this Blue Hen team, if you can draw a body off you, that's great. That's what Jacob Cushing did yeah, last well, year. Pull,
0: pull, you know, pulling somebody from from Carter from yeah, the middle, You know, pulling attention great. away from Carter from uh, Kevin Anderson when he's coming on pick and roll. Like you have to respect Matt Ferretto when he's on the floor.
1: Yeah, and that's really good for a team that last year suffered so much because people were not tacking a man on a Darian Bryant that didn't shoot well, who I do have to put out a formal apology to Darian Bryant. A lot of people were listening to the call, the last two calls I did, and it almost sounded like Darian Bryant was an awful player just getting good now from how I was commentating it. That's not the idea. Darian Bryant's a good player that was playing really poorly and is finally getting back to what we thought were Darian Bryant basketball levels? He had an awful stretch. I wouldn't stretch. even say.
0: I would like. I got to a point where I thought that was who he was.
1: Yeah, we. It was like almost where the norm. it was like
0: no, where it was like he came in here. It's like he's got some promise, and they didn't perform for a year and a half, two years, and it's like all right, like this is what he is. He's mediocre at best. He's probably a net minus for this team. Yeah, and you look at the last couple of games. 12 points, five of seven shooting, two of three from three against Chester, or excuse me, on Monday against Louisiana Tech against Chestnut Hill, team high 18 18 points. points. Then again, it was like, okay, this feels empty. It's D2, like good for him, good night. But when it comes to CIA play, like you're going to still play with Carter, you're going to play through Anderson. When you see it Monday against Louisiana Tech, a team that could be, you know, maybe tournament wise, like it's a fringe team that's right on the bubble, when you see it Monday, it starts to feel real, and that's another spot where we said, okay, they're going to need a guy who can stretch the floor, who can play the three. Who's it going to be? It's not Bryant. Well, maybe it is Bryant if he can play this way.
1: Now with him and Matt Varetto in the corners, those are two players that you cannot just let stand out there. You need to guard them both. Verreto,
0: again, combine, if you combine their three-point shooting, four of six for the two of them, yeah. then you throw in Theo Horton, who is three of eight.
1: Not bad. It's a good shooting team. I really liked how Darian and we haven't even Bryan's got to playing.
0: Ryan Allen, who tied the school record last year for threes and for three a season. pointers. Yeah.
1: yeah, and I think that both of those players, both Matt Fredo and Darian Bryant, come CIA play might have, in relativity, the most important part on this Blue Hen team. Yeah, Obviously, exactly. in relativity to your Eric Carter needing right. to drop right. twenty.
0: Right, and it, you know they're gonna have ups and downs, but if this can be their peak performance, if they can get to this level by March consistently, Delaware's We're in a great, in very shape. good place. I want to ask you also going back to Horton a bit. I remember one of the things I said to you against when they were playing Maryland and they start Bryant, Ryan Johnson, and Colin Goss, mm-hmm. and then we see a the Horton come off the bench right away, shoots a three. First half he had eight points, which led the team. Second half Eric Carter just took over, so Horton didn't really score as much. But I said to you, okay, like when are they gonna like stop playing these games? When's Horton just gonna start? Because he's yeah. he's the best guy they have. And then the next couple of games, he kind of disappeared a little bit. Varetto had that big second game against St. Peter's. They come back home, and they didn't really need him much. He played fine against Wilmington and those teams. Now I was a little surprised, like you, to see him go in there so early. I thought it was one of those things where you're thinking, okay, he's going to play a lot of minutes, but as a freshman, let's start, start him on the bench, keep the pressure low, start the, the fifth-year guy in Johnson, start the fourth-year guy in Bryant. Now he's in, and I don't think he's coming out. Unless, unless they get to the point in the season where Allen comes back and Bryant's still playing well, then maybe Horton comes off the bench as the first guy as a combo guard. Yeah. But like, what do you think the ceiling is until that time comes for Ithiel Horton?
1: When I spoke to him after the game, I had the opportunity to do an interview with him. He kind of put it as this is a whole new ball game for him. He was always a slow and methodical player, and he kind of put it that way. I was always that slow-release guy that once you caught the ball, the defenders had the opportunity to step up on you and guard you, so he had to adapt in other ways. And I talked to him after this game, and he was like, this Blue Hen team is fast. I got to learn to shoot fast, and he was almost instantly like almost Clay Thompson-esque catch-and-shoot like it's nothing. This can be a great role for him if he can realize that Kevin Anderson and Eric Carter are going to run a pick-and-roll play – Nine times out of ten when they run down the uh, court, Eric uh, Carter's going to set a high screen. Anderson's going to roll under it, try to feed Eric Carter down low. But if that doesn't work and they double Eric Carter, which Louisiana Tech did on the very first play of the game. they Teams did going to do that a lot. Yeah, yep. they did their homework. They knew Eric Carter was a threat. If they double Eric Carter, someone's open. And if it's Horton, he is going to rack up the points because his catch and shoot is good, his drive is good, and his first step is really good. So I'm really excited to see how he fits in on this pick and roll heavy two man game for the Blue Hens.
0: I know we've talked about him a lot, but how how good is Eric Carter bad? I mean, that's real 18 points a game, 8 rebounds, almost 9 rebounds a game at this point in the season, and he hasn't played big minutes when they've played those D2 teams. In this game against Louisiana Tech where he does play, 36 minutes, 23 points, his second 20-point performance of the season, eight rebounds, dude shooting 65% from the floor right now, eight of 12 against Louisiana Tech, fourth in the CIA and scoring third in rebounds.
1: He's real. Coach we said at the last, at the end of last year's CAA tournament, Eric Carter's going to be the best big man in the CIA. And we at the time, me, Ahmed, and Teddy kind of laughed to ourselves, but kind of like, Okay. Maybe.
0: Sure. Like, he'd have to really improve, but there's a path for that to happen.
1: He looks unstoppable. He had a play where they were double covering him, and uh, Louisiana Tech Center um, was almost on top of him. And he jumped and almost self passed it to himself and hit the flow. Self passed it to himself. That's redundant. But self passed, flipped it to his right hand, and shot all in midair and hit the shot and walked away like it was nothing. And from that point, I spoke to Parker. And I said, if he can do that, not necessarily that's a game plan decision, but if that's the Eric Carter we have, teams better watch out. He looks unreal. His post moves, really good. And he's gotten more vocal. He has – from the second half on, he was yelling every defensive possession, every offensive possession, dictating where people were supposed to go, telling people, "Okay, you have a man behind you. You're going to stay on him. He's literally telling the other team what the Blue Hens are going to do. But he's so confident in himself and everyone else around him that it didn't matter. Yeah. And if this is the Eric Carter we have for every game of the season, I will agree with Coach Inglesby. We have the best big man.
0: And in in my experience, that's always been him. He's always been confident, and he's been confident in his team. Now the game is at the next level. Mm-hmm. So he not only – you know last year, the year before, he was confident that he was going to be a defensive anchor. He was going to do enough on offense, and he – had confidence in his guys like Anderson, Daly, Allen, etc. to do the rest. This year, it seems he's confident in himself. Where he gets those post touches, if they don't come in the double, he's going to take his guy to the block and and put up two points. And if they do bring the double, he's been passing very well, in my opinion, out of the post. He's going to work it to these guys who are proving themselves on the outside, like Anithio Horton, like a Matt Verretto, like a Darian Bryant. Delaware tomorrow night plays University of Maryland Eastern Shore. That's on the road, a seven o'clock start. Then Sunday, they're at Columbia. They won't be back to the Bob Carpenter Center until next Wednesday for a matchup against Navy. We still have quite some time until CAA play begins December 28th, right after the holiday. What would you like to see Delaware do in that time as kind of the, the last test run period? What would you like to see them try? Are there still places that you think this team should use these next few games to grow?
1: They need to find their X-Factor roles, and those X-Factors being everyone not named Derek Carter and Kevin Anderson. Everyone else on that team is an X-Factor. We just talked about how great Ethel Horton was and how Darian Bryan's coming into form. They're all X-Factors. If Anderson and Carter have a bad game, we're not winning. If Darian Bryant has a bad game, we can still win the game. Yeah. Anderson and Carter can do it. They need to find out how they're going to involve Varetto more, Jacob Cushing more. They ran a Cushing set barely with Monday. Cushing as a five. I loved it. I thought that was a deathly— Rotation where they didn't really have a center. Cushing played it on the defensive end because he's tall. He's not really gonna beat any. Didn't they do that out. against Chestnut Hill? Yeah, against too. Chestnut Hill. Yeah, and you're not gonna you're not gonna beat anybody with Jacob Cushing as your center. But for all five players on that court, they can shoot the three, they can dribble, and they can pass. For the most of that word, yeah. Um, but once they find where those X factors go, the Darian Bryants, Matt Verrettos, uh this team will be ready to roll because I think that they have their core. We know their core once everything around them comes together, kind of with the women's basketball team, actually. Like last year, we knew Nicole and Ibosi was their core. Once they figured out everyone else around them, now we can move towards CAA play.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We're going to take this time with four weeks to go in the regular season to make our picks for the awards. And these are awards that are determined at the end of the regular season, so playoffs don't really have any part in this. Um, and, And we'll kick it off with the MVP Award this has been uh, talked about a lot, but now I think it actually really you can make compelling cases, and you have a large enough body of work for all of these candidates to to be able to tell what their season uh, has become. And I'll, I'll put, pose it to you, Jake. At this point, your NFL MVP is.
1: Ugh, I don't know if I want to go safe or controversial. I'll go safe. Drew Brees is my NFL MVP. He's has the highest. Almost the highest QB rating ever, and that's just Drew Brees in a nutshell. He's great. His team's doing great, and I think he will probably win the MVP if this keeps up.
0: My pick is Drew Brees as well. There is an excellent story published the other day by Sports Illustrated about— a very good story. You saw that too? Yeah. Yeah, I love that. There's a great story about Drew Brees, and I think it's literally called Hiding in Plain Sight. The idea that in this era of Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, and even before that, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees has been here the whole time The guy has six of the eight 5,000-yard seasons or something like that. Uh, He's already the all-time leading passer. He's 39. He's showing no signs of slowing down. His team has done it in a variety of ways. They've been a run-first team. They've been a team that has no running game at all. They were the first team to put a big wide receiver in the slot and be very successful at doing that. When you think about what Marquise Colston became for them as a seventh-round draft pick and then even what they did – With Jimmy Graham a couple years ago, and he hasn't been the same player since he left that program and left Drew Brees. An insanely impressive stat line by Brees, who still has one interception, which came week one. Uh, His completion percentage is on track to set another NFL record to break the one he set last year for completion percentage in a season by an ineligible league leader, meaning he's he's thrown enough passes to count uh, for that stat. Absolutely, extremely impressive season, uh, Patrick Mahomes had a lot of had a lot of hype and deservedly so at the beginning of the season. Some people felt like he was going to run away with it. To me, he's probably two or three. He's still in this he's, conversation. He's
1: three on my list. But
0: Drew Brees to me is the clear cut MVP.
1: I have Drew. I have three quarterbacks. Drew Brees at one. Andrew Luck.
0: Excuse me. At, I should correct. Drew Brees has two interceptions.
1: Yeah, he threw one last week. Two interceptions. Um, I have Andrew Luck at two. Andrew Luck's thrown three touchdown passes in eight consecutive games. The team's averaging the most points out of any other team, almost 300 yards per game, come from Andrew Luck. That's another team with absolutely no running game, a mediocre defense, in a tough division where all four teams were able to win the division. It probably won't end up that way anyway. But Andrew Luck, if he doesn't win, even if he does win Comeback Player of the Year, which is almost a lock for him to win, this is Andrew Luck's MVP award if Drew Brees wasn't in the league.
0: If you're into the case of who's doing the most with the least, he, uh, he wins that argument Hand-hand. every time. Yeah. You think about how horrible the offensive line has been in the past couple of seasons, which has really hampered his play. Mm-hmm. You think about, like you said, the running game not really being there. A lot of people think Marlon Mack has promised, but it hasn't been consistent, and the defense is very poor. The Saints' defense say what you will about it. It's better. It's one of the better run defenses in the league. They struggle against the pass. And you look at their skill guys, Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara, Mark Ingram. Then again, you can also throw into what Drew Brees has done with receivers two through five who have been guys literally off the street because Mm -hmm. of the injuries they've sustained. But Andrew Luck deserves a lot of credit. And so does Frank Reich, who we will get to. In a little bit with one of our next awards coach of the year, he's certainly in that discussion for what they've been able to do with perhaps the least of all these playoff teams that we're talking about.
1: The Colts made a move that was very controversial, and that's drafting an offensive lineman early. They drafted Quinton Nelson out of Notre Dame. And not a tackle. And not a tackle. They drafted Quinton Nelson, who is the only reason why Andrew Luck didn't get sacked in five consecutive games, which is a crazy stat that no defensive player put his hands on Andrew Luck for five Consecutive games. And it was the Miami Dolphins that got to him first, which is outrageous. But that team is helping as much as they can with Andrew Locke. And now with Jack Doyle down and T.Y. Hilton injured, time to make something out of nothing for Andrew Locke.
0: You're listening to Blue Hand Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD with Jake Lampert and Brandon Holbeck. We're picking the NFL awards with a quarter of the season to go. For MVP, we both picked Drew Brees. For defensive player of the year, I'm going with Aaron Donald. I think this is another one that's pretty clear. 14 and a half sacks to lead the league, three forced fumbles, including those two big ones you saw on Monday night a couple weeks ago against the Kansas City Chiefs. As an interior rusher, I don't think anybody has the same type of impact. You think about how often he's double teamed. When he does get pressure, how that collapses the pocket and often doesn't allow the quarterback a place to escape, unlike when sometimes you see edge rushers collapse down and the quarterback's able to step up past them. Aaron Donald is a monster. He's a force on the inside, and he's my defensive player of the year.
1: I'll bring you to one play which should make you think Aaron Donald's the greatest defensive player in the last 15 to 20 years that we've ever seen. New Orleans Saints. Aaron Donald gets double-teamed off the block. He swings past one with one of the most nifty hand moves I've ever seen, absolutely bodies the second guy, I think was his backup tight end, and then hits Alvin Kamara so hard that I thought Alvin Kamara was going to pack his stuff up and walk away from football. Mm. And after that moment, all I can say is that Aaron Donald will never lose the Defensive Player of the Year award as long as he's on the field. He's crazy.
0: There was talk a lot during the regular, or excuse me, before the regular season began among the Philadelphia Eagles and their media, Fletcher Cox kind of putting it out there that his goal was to win Defensive Player of the Year, and he's been great. Mm -hmm. But the difference between somebody like Cox, who is a perennial pro bowler, and all-pro, and Aaron Donald, who changes the game when he's on the field, can't be overstated. Aaron Donald is on another level, and he's the Defensive Player of the Year. Now we'll go to some of the more interesting ones. I think there's arguments to be made for a couple different players in these categories, starting with Offensive Rookie of the Year. Jake, who do you have?
1: Saquon Barkley. There's no there's no one even close. Uh, do you have anyone like close?
0: I think you could make an argument that Baker Mayfield's had a pretty significant impact if you want to play this as value added to a team. If you think of the rookie of the year in those terms, I don't. I think of it as who's the best rookie. And Saquon Barkley is already a top five player at his position, where Baker Mayfield is a top 25 player, top 20 maybe, if you're being generous. So while Baker has had a huge impact on Cleveland no longer being a complete laughingstock, just a bad NFL team, and Saquon Barkley... His team has actually kind of moved backward in some senses to no fault of him, though, because I think they have poor coaching and yeah. and a lot of other holes, other places. That's the argument I think you can make for somebody else. But to me, it's Saquon Barkley. He's the best rookie so far on offense of the players we've seen. A name, though, that's interesting, too, and should get a lot of credit for what he's done this season, is Philip Lindsay in Denver. He's been really yeah. good.
1: Yeah. Be- only drawback of being philip Lindsay is that you still are losing touches and that shouldn't be a, a huge downgrade because even the best players like ezekiel elliott need to take a few snaps off and let another person come in and run but he is losing a nice chunk of touches i should say chunk but a nice amount of touches to royce freeman who was supposed to be their rookie running back star and the undrafted Philip Lindsay came into town and took his spot. But he's been playing great. That's an offense that is in desperate need of a dynamic running back, and they haven't had one. CJ Anderson, he wasn't dynamic. He was good, mm-hmm. but there has never he been was, a play. I
0: still believe he's a creation of Peyton Manning. Yeah, yeah.
1: He was the most boring running back I've ever seen. He give him the ball. He runs for five or six yards. He was talented. He put up a 1,000-yard seasons. But Philip Lindsay might be the answer that Denver has been searching and for. And it
0: was supposed to be Royce Freeman. Yeah, but Royce it's really it's Ben Philip Lindsay who has stepped up and satisfied that role. I think he probably even beyond the expectations
1: yeah. for Royce Freeman this season.
0: Let's go to defensive rookie of the year. Who do you have there?
1: I don't think this one is relatively close, and I'm actually going to go with a Colt. And this one is Leonard, uh, their defensive lineman, I believe it's Darius Leonard. He's a beast. He has the most tackles at this point for a rookie than any other player in NFL history. He has done leaps and bounds more what the Indianapolis Colts secondary can ask from him, and he's going to be a player, not necessarily in the Khalil Mack, Aaron Donalds role, but he a player you need to put two bodies on at all times.
0: Yeah, there's been some really impressive highlights that have circulated where he's just running through blockers and making some really nice tackles i'll throw another name out there derwin james gets
1: a lot of hype well, with the chargers he, he fell so far in the draft Everyone said yeah. like, he's not a real person he's a stud in uh-huh. that chargers team you're
0: starting to see and i wonder if this will change how nfl teams look at the position you're starting to see some young safeties come in and make an impact at a position where there are not a lot of starting caliber guys like mm-hmm. there probably aren't 64 quality safeties. no shot So if you can get Derwin James in the first round, if you can get Jamal Adams a couple years ago, who's now looking like a really good player for the Jets, that's Earl Thomas, if you even go back further, Eric Berry, a top 10 draft pick at safety. That's a position some teams might want to put more emphasis on because I think a big, a really good safety makes a difference in a league where there's not a lot of safety play. The value over replacement level safety is pretty high.
1: The third, if you want to put another name out there, Bradley Chubb, the Von Miller Padawan over there yeah. in Denver he really is like you watch somebody do the side-by-side of some of the plays where they're on the field at the same time identical moves they play different positions but identical moves Ron Miller is literally teaching him everything he knows and three four years from now assuming both are still in Denver Broncos uniform that might be the high-powered defense that they finally needed
0: you're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage for 91.3 WVUD I'm Brandon Hovec with Jake Lampert the last award we're going to discuss is Coach of the Year. Last year, Sean McVay took home this award, bringing the Rams back to the playoffs with a record of 11-5. and Often, it ends up being which team exceeded our preseason expectations. It's right. not necessarily who's the best coach in football, because I think that comes to a pretty small uh, pool of candidates. Mm-hmm. Where we're talking about Bill Belichick, maybe we're talking about Sean McVay now. But for this year, for Coach of the Year 2018, who's your
1: pick? There's two. And I think it just comes down to which team finishes the year better. First is Reich. We talked about him for the Indianapolis Colts. It's a great team. They started one and five, and they've surged ever since. The second's Matt Nagy. I mean, this is a Chicago Bears team that wasn't really expected to be that great. Mm-hmm. Then they brought in Colomac. The Mac
0: trade changed everything for them. And they were team.
1: like, maybe they can be a wild card team. And they're winning the division almost handily. They dismantled the Minnesota Vikings team. That score was not a good reflection on how well Chicago played that day. They've beaten the Detroit Lions like it was nothing. I, If I had to give an award to somebody right now, it would be Matt Nagy. But assuming both teams win out, the Colts and the Chicago Bears, I'd be more inclined to give it to Reich and the Colts.
0: Yeah, I think if the Colts make the playoffs as a wild card— it's hard not to give it to Frank Reich, yeah. and that would be what would that finish be if they started one and five? You're telling me they finished ten and zero.
1: They would be or eleven. Eleven. Uh, started one in five, so they'd finish ten and zero from that point.
0: Yep, even then. even if they finish nine and one, if they lose one of these next, like that's, that's a you, ten and six record like for that, the Colts. That is impressive, and. If you go back to the offseason, this was a job that Josh McDaniels, the Patriots offensive coordinator, accepted. He backed out at the last minute. They literally had the press conference scheduled. He backs out the night before, and they go nip Frank Reich off the Eagles coaching staff. Obviously, they just been to the Super Bowl, and he's a big part of the reason why Nick Foles was able to succeed yeah. down the stretch for the Eagles. He, John DeFilippo, who's now the offensive coordinator with the Vikings, and Doug Peterson, part of that Eagles Brain Trust. He's showing that he's a legitimate coach. I mean, there is question marks, right, of who out of that group of guys is really responsible for what went on in Philadelphia. Doug Peterson called the plays in Philadelphia, not Frank Reich. Frank Reich is if they hold up the coach of the year. And if not, Matt Nagy has a compelling case, too. I think you could even make the argument for Sean McVay. Sean McVay and Andy Uh, Reid are still up there. You can't deny the, you know, a lot's been made of this. I'm not the first person to say it the creativity of those offenses and how they're revolutionizing offensive football in a time that obviously the roles cater to that more so than they have in the past but those two guys are very impressive when you especially look at the offenses
1: yeah out of all the do- or projected division winners they're the two that should be if you're going to put one of them in contention they're the two names that you're going to pick from
0: real quick before we go to J- break jake three quarters of the, way through the season. I want to run through the divisions one by one and give a pick um, with maybe, you know, a little bit of analysis, but not not going deep into it. But uh-huh. our quick picks as far as who we expect to win each division, make it to the playoffs. So cool. starting with the AFC, AFC East, the Patriots right now hold a significant lead over everybody else. All the other three teams stink. As yep. normal, Patriots will make it to the playoffs. In the north, the Steelers seem to be in control 7-3-1. and one. Baltimore's behind them at six and five with now Lamar Jackson behind center. What do you see?
1: Baltimore loses in a tie break and the Pittsburgh Steelers win the division. Lamar Jackson's great. I thought this was a revitalization of Joe Flacco, and it kind of was starting to look like it, but this Lamar Jackson kid is yeah, balling you, out. You can't bench Jackson nope. now.
0: Flacco's done. Yeah, no way. AFC South. They're just talking about it with the fight in Frank Reichs, they're at six and
1: five. Houston now eight and three. Houston another team on a roll. I said the Colts went out and win the division. I still stand by that the Colts went out and win the division, but it's looking more and more unlikely that Houston hits what they would need to hit. Two speed bumps, one being against the Indianapolis towards the end of the year to lose the division. It's getting more and more unlikely for how dominant they were against Tennessee. I think Houston
0: holds on and wins. I think the Colts do make it as a playoff. I think this this division gets two teams. Mm -hmm. And to the West, Kansas City, for all the hype about them, Just a one-game lead over the Los Angeles Chargers. We talk a lot about the Rams and the Chiefs being these amazing offensive teams. The Chargers are on that level in terms of yards per play, yards per attempt this season. They're just a small step behind, but they're still among, historically, some of the best 10 or 15 offenses that we've seen in the NFL. One-game split. There's a game coming up. I don't know if it's this weekend or next weekend between the Chiefs and the Chargers that could very well decide this division. What do you see here out west?
1: I think the Chiefs will be able to hold on only because of the Melvin Gordon injury for the Chargers. That's a, that's a hit. He's a, he was their touchdown machine. He was getting 25 or so touches a game. You cannot be as good when you lose your 25 a touch running back.
0: And to the end, I agree with you. I think the Chiefs do take it. And to the NFC, perhaps the most interesting yet at the same time, the worst division in football, the NFC East. Dallas and Washington tied with a record of 6-5, and five, though the Eagles at 5-6. and six. If they win this weekend against Washington, who, of course, is without Alex Smith for the rest of the season, and tonight Dallas loses to New Orleans, which seems likely Philadelphia would have sole possession of first— or would have possession. They'd be in a tie, but they would take the tiebreaker against both of
1: those teams in first place in the NFC East. I might just, like, flip a coin— and see what it lands on, and make my pick based on that. I, I don't think think we Washington can eliminate can do Washington, it. Yeah, yeah, because of the injury to Smith. Yeah, Washington won't be able to do it. But Dallas and Amari Cooper finally look like they're a team, and we know the Eagles, they've been able to pull out more miraculous things than winning a really poopy division. So if I had to pick, I'll say Dallas. I won't be shocked either way.
0: I'm taking Dallas. The Eagles have... Division Two division games against the Redskins and one against Dallas, they can't afford to drop any of those. That would put them to a record of 8-8 eight and eight if you give them losses against the Los Angeles Rams and the Houston Texans. It's a tough schedule coming up. The Eagles played all of their quote-unquote easy opponents and got here with a record of 5-6. and six. The loss two weeks ago against Dallas at home, I think, is what's going to decide this. I think that yep. the Eagles will either drop the Dallas game on the road or they'll drop Washington on the road. And in addition to losing against Houston and New Orleans, and they will finish the season seven and nine, Dallas will be eight and eight and win the division. Neither team will make it past the game in the playoffs. Right. NFC North, Chicago, now a convincing lead over Minnesota. The Bears record of eight and three. Minnesota six four and one. The Packers all but out of it at four six and one.
1: Uh Bears win the division. I think that the Packers actually finish in last in this division. They are not a good football team. Short, sweet, and to the point. They're bad.
0: NFC North, excuse me, NFC South. I I agree with you, by the way. Uh, Bears win it. I think the Vikings have a shot at the wild card. Everybody else is out. NFC South, Saints, they have it. Yep. And the only question is, are they going to be the one or the two seed? Right now they'd be the one seed. And then the Panthers behind them at 6-5, and five. I think that's a playoff team. Too. Wild card. Yep, for sure. And out west, the Rams, again, with the Saints tied a record of 10-1. The Saints have the tiebreaker, having defeated the Rams a couple weeks ago. Then the Seahawks, after that win against Green Bay, they're still very much in the conversation for a wild card. A half game behind Minnesota and tied with Carolina for that second wild card. It's sad six and five.
1: because they're finally making it work. They're really getting their footing. This running game, which we have torn to pieces, they have three running backs that can do it all. Rashad Penny, Chris Carson, Mike Davis. Three stars. Eh, stars. It makes it, it, makes it
0: real backs. tough for me in fantasy football when, when yeah. you're trying to decide whether to play Chris Carson week in, week out.
1: Yeah, you've got three people that can do it, and you obviously have a guy behind center named Russell Wilson who, if it wasn't for Aaron Rodgers, would be the most miraculous comeback player warrior that we've ever seen. So I think the Rams win the division. I don't think the Seahawks can do enough to take a wild card spot because, I mean, I think the Carolina Panthers have one quote-unquote locked, but I don't think another team besides the Vikings can compete for the other one.
0: And I also will say, I I agree, I think it's going to end up being Vikings-Panthers. I think if the Seahawks do bounce a team, I actually think it's the Panthers that they have a chance of beating. Yeah. But... I'm not convinced any of those wildcard teams can beat a division winner. No. With the exception of the NFC East, obviously. But the Saints, the Rams, are on another level than than the rest of these teams. And I think the Bears, because of their defense, will make it interesting against one of those teams should they match up. But I think it comes to the Saints and the Rams pretty clearly here.
1: Yeah, but I would be surprised if it wasn't Saints-Rams at the end of this NFL season, deciding who's going to go to the Super Bowl. But I would also be surprised if the journey that got them there was not brutal because these NFC teams know how to fight to the last breath. In the AFC, if you win early, you're probably going to win the game. But in the NFC, you're going to have a battle from start to finish because all of these teams can fight.
0: You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. It's time for our somewhat regular segment, Top 10 Rankings, And this time we're going to use it as an opportunity to discuss the seniors leaving this Delaware team. And it's one of the largest, if not the largest, class of seniors to leave Delaware. And they're not only leaving, but they're leaving some holes on both the offense and defense. Eight starters defensively and your top three pass catchers on offense, plus starting running back Kani Kane and a few along the offensive line will be leaving this team as Danny Rocco will really be tested to see not only have the players he's brought in the last two seasons and will bring in this offseason, whether those guys will pay off and bring this program back to where everybody so desperately wants it to be, but can he also develop what has been on this team for a couple of seasons, the guys still left from the Brock era, and his guys, can they take on the shape of this team, and will the foundation that these seniors have quote-unquote laid in place, will that be enough to carry Delaware back to the playoffs and maybe a little bit further in 2019 and beyond? So for this, actually, we're gonna. I think we should start at the top because I think those are more more obvious. Yep. And then we'll get into the players as we go down the list. So we'll just go one by one. For me, number one impact lost safety Nasir Adderley. That's who I have. I think he is an NFL draft pick, fifth round sounds right. Yeah, that's a Fourth four. round. Yep. It would probably be the ceiling for him. Rocco said on Wednesday, he's he and a few other guys, are, but especially he will get a really good look at the NFL. He said. In previous weeks, and previous seasons, that Adderley's the most talented safety he's ever coached, and he's been in coaching for 20-plus years. Yep. I think I think the four interceptions are one thing, but week in, week out, the guy's one of the leading tacklers. He's very versatile. You can play him at corner. You can play him back deep as the high safety. You can play him in the box against the run. The guy can do it all.
1: The weird thing about safety is it's, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. If your numbers are low, like your interception total low, that's bad because why aren't you intercepting the ball a lot? But that's also good because people aren't throwing you the ball. And I think that really fits the case for Nasir Adderley because teams just sometimes don't throw the ball to his area. They sometimes don't run routes that highlight the players running into the, the Nasir Adderley territory. That's how dominant he was. And I think the Blue Hens are really going to miss him and even more so him and another player on this list that complemented each other so well. That's going to be a big missed combo.
0: On number At number two on my list, I had Troy Reader, the middle linebacker, a career-high 16 tackles against James Madison. He had 15 in the game against Elon, led the CIA in tackles this season, well over 120 in his career at Delaware, well over 300. The guy makes almost every play. He's in on almost every play behind the line of scrimmage if the running back gets up to that second level. You're a your prototypical middle linebacker. He's not going to cover guys out in space and do things flashy, but he clogs the holes. He knows exactly where to be on every play and a big part of Delaware's 3-4 defense.
1: I have Troy Reeder at three on my list. I put Ray Jones ahead of him. I think Ray Jones did a lot for this team that kind of went unnoticed. He could do it all and he did it all. He played everywhere and I'm very, if there's one th- thing I'm upset about, about that JMU game is that Ray Jones didn't get to finish it, because that speculation included would be an entirely different ball game if Ray Jones played that second half.
0: Hmm.
1: I think I, he's he's just a great player.
0: He is on my list. He's not he's not nearly that high. I was surprised to hear you say Ray Jones, I, and I I understand the point. I think he was a great player here, but I also like the last couple weeks of the season. Make me question some of the guys in the secondary. The game against Villanova makes me question Tenny. Makes me question Casey Hinton. And, Those are the and big Elijah questions. Hill. But it also makes me question Ray Jones. He basically, in a lot of Delaware's formations, is playing out in the slot. He's basically yeah. playing as that nickel corner, and he's gotten he's gotten gashed a couple of times. He comes up and he makes some nice plays in the run game. He made that one fourth down play against Stony Brook yeah, that Stony really Stony Brook sticks Hick out was to me. Revolutionary, <laughs> but. I do have some question marks about about what what he was doing here in Delaware, but he is on my list, just not as high. Yeah. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on ninety one point three WVUD. We are running down the top ten seniors on this team by impact loss. So how how much of an impact did they have on this Delaware team, and how big are their shoes for the twenty nineteen team to fill? At number one on both of our lists, we had Nasir Adderley. At number two, I had Troy Reader. At number two, Jake. Add Ray Jones, and at number three, Jake
1: has Troy Troy Reader, Reader. which we talked about.
0: For me, at number three, I had Charles Scarf, the tight end. I think what he is in the red zone is phenomenal. He's prototypical big tight end receiving threat in the red zone. I think down the stretch this season, in part because of Pacquiao's injuries, in part because I think the play calling was fairly unimaginative in the final few weeks of the season, he wasn't used as much as he should have been. The, the pace he was on if you take the first seven games of the season up to the Towson game, was the pace of maybe the best season by a tight end by a Delaware player ever. And that trailed off a lot at the end of this season. He finished the year a touchdown away from tying the record for most touchdowns in a season by a Delaware tight end and the record for most touchdowns in a career by a Delaware tight end. He came here after a couple of seasons at Rutgers, so he wasn't even here for a full four years. I think that... Had Delaware been executing and firing on all cylinders offensively, this is a guy who could have had 12, 13 touchdowns to go with, 6, 7, maybe 800 yards, and a lot more catches than he had. And I think that's, that's a pretty big impact on this team. That maybe wasn't fully realized, but I think he was very, very talented, and it showed at the beginning portion of this season.
1: I definitely have Charles Scarf on my list. He's a little higher up. I thought the one reason Charles Scarf was not this high is because it wasn't, four-year production it wasn't a three-year production and frankly it wasn't a two-year production it was this year yeah It's it just was, this year and it, another player on my list who's actually very high on my list did not have a good season this year but was so great before it that I put him high so it was hard to figure out where I wanted to rank them I think it's fair that Charles Scarf was there because and I say it so many times but that end around that Kehoe and Scarf got where Ch- Charles Scarf runs seven or eight yards and then goes around towards the sideline and catches those floaters from Kehoe. Mm-hmm, the little out route. Like if he's
0: in man coverage was against play. a
1: linebacker, f- like forget about yeah, it. Yeah, it was their best play, period. Like their best success came when they ran that on third down to get across. So I think he was a great player, and I think for filling that position, he did a great job at it.
0: Now on my list, this is where it got interesting for me. I had those three guys in my head, and we came up with this idea to do it, as those are the three guys that I really look at and say – They're going to miss these guys, especially the the top two for me and and Reader and Adderley for a lot of what you said about what they've done in their careers. These are guys who have been pillars of the program and of a defense that was up and down this season, but overall in their careers was very good, Uh especially when you compare it against what Delaware did offensively. At number four, I went with Joe Walker. And again, he should have been used more down the stretch this season. He ends up as the team's leading wide receiver with 671 yards. He did not have a catch against James Madison in the playoff game, as we discussed at the beginning of the show. But his athleticism was unrivaled by maybe anybody on the offense not named Nolan Henderson, who we only saw for one game against Villanova. That's the only guy who compares in terms of speed and and acceleration. I think Walker's a bit stronger than Henderson. Henderson's probably a bit quicker. He probably gets up to his top speed a little bit quicker than even Walker does. But that type of athleticism is very difficult to find, and I think that's why he will be a tough loss for Delaware to stomach.
1: I have Joe Walker at five. My number four, Frank Rago.
0: Oh, I didn't put him on my list.
1: Frank Rago was perhaps the team's biggest safety net last year. Teams. He he was the team's safety net last year. The Blue Hen team knew that if they get within 45 yards of field goal range— put Frank out there they'll take their chances 10 times out of 10 this year was not his
0: year he was was he the guy you're talking about as yeah. far as
1: okay. he, this was this was not Frank rago's best year this is not one that he writes on his resume but last year and especially that Stony Brook game is the one that sticks out to me when they the blue hens marching downfield every play is working for them they get a rough stop on fourth down and they decide even though our offense is a machine, we are more confident putting Frank Raga out there, and he boots it through the uprights. A 50, 50-something, 50, well, to to 52, but I could be wrong. But it was a 50-something yarder, and he bombed it through. I think the team's going to miss him a lot because of just that pure safety net he brought to the
0: team. And he was so consistent for so yeah. long. 88 straight point afters uh, by far. I mean, he broke the program record last season at somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 or 60, and he kept going to 88. Very much a career to be proud of if you're Frank
1: Rago. For sure.
0: You're listening to Blue on Sports Cage on 91.3 WVD. We're running through the top 10 seniors leaving this Delaware football team after they made Delaware's first playoff appearance since 2010. On, on Jake's list at number five, he said he had Joe Walker, who we discussed as my number four. At number five for me, this is when it got even got a little bit harder. I went with Charles Bell. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I don't think he was as good this season as he had been in previous seasons. If you think back to his junior year before the injury, he was first-team All-CAA, and he was the leading tackler of this team. He was actually a step ahead of Troy Reader in most people's estimations. He was the leader of the defense with Reeder kind of as his counterpart, his sous-chef, if you will, in the middle. And that those roles reversed this season, and that happened last season when Reeder was— borderline All-American and Bell got hurt unfortunately and it was a very significant injury and he deserves tons of credit for battling back and rejoining this team for this season and it was huge in terms of the timeline given that they had Jalen Kindle last year who could step in and play almost at Charles Bell's level and they were able to bring Bell back for this year where otherwise they would have been forced to probably play a freshman in Mm -hmm. Johnny Buchanan. So I think his role as a mentor of those young guys plus just taking the body of work of his career adds up to a pretty strong impact where maybe that wasn't fully there this season. But overall, the four-year career of Charles Bell is a pretty big loss.
1: I feel like every person I have, you just have him one higher. I have Charles Bell at six. Who'd you, you go with? You had, five with Walker. Walker. Okay. Yep. So I guess, should I just go to my seven then? didn't
0: me mention my six. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have Bell at six. At six for me, I have Kanai Kane. Mm -hmm. But I almost want to make this Kanai Kane plus Kareem Williams
1: plus Thomas Jefferson. I was so inclined to almost put Thomas Jefferson on my list. I didn't. But when you think of Thomas Jefferson this year, he had one touch out of the backfield and two on special teams, I
0: think. I don't know. I don't think I... Kareem Williams did not have a carry this season. Maybe Jefferson had one. One.
1: Maybe. And then the other he played special teams. He
0: played special teams all year. Yeah. Kareem Williams did not play special teams. But when you think of Thomas Jefferson last year, two years ago, three years ago, two years ago was, or excuse me, three years ago was the rookie year. Yeah. Two years ago, still productive. Last year, fell out of favor. Yeah. Said he was going to transfer. Wasn't here in the spring. Ended up coming back. And they switched his position. They switched him to H-back. Kareem Williams. Running back all four years, his sophomore year when West Hills when Jalen Randolph gets hurt, he averaged more than five yards a carry. He and and freshman Thomas Jefferson combined to be the number two rushing attack in the CAA. And Danny Rocco was asked on Wednesday, when Kanai Kane gets injured, when the running game is not successful against Villanova, especially in the second half, was there a thought of? Can we resurrect one of these guys who in the past has been a successful bell cow for us going into a playoff game against James Madison? Why did Kareem Williams and Thomas Jefferson not get the call? And Rocco said maybe it's something that we should have thought about. But at this point in the season, we felt more comfortable with the guys who had been getting more of the reps. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, these guys fell out of favor. But they they, are, they have a better body of work than Dejon Lee. They have a better body of work a hell of a lot better a, but a body of work than Andre Robinson, who got about half the snaps against James Madison. So I think that's a, a huge... And I also part of why I want to put them together is that when you lose Kane, you lose that first and second down guy, the bell cow guy, and by also losing Williams and Jefferson this year, there's nobody left in the running back backfield that I view as the bell cow guy. I don't think Dajon Lee at his size and his running style can be a -a 20-touch-a-game guy. I think he's better served as the number two, 10 to 15 touches. Because Williams, Jefferson, and Kane line up this year and they all leave and you don't have that Bell Kyle guy, I think that's a significant hole for this offense to look at. Maybe it's Andre Robinson, but I didn't see a lot to say that he's going to all of a sudden be 20 touches. Corey Sproul, they said, is coming back to the team. So maybe Corey Sproul comes into this situation somehow. Mm-hmm. But taking those three guys together, Kane, Williams, and Jefferson, kind of violates our rules, but whatever. Um, I think that's significant for this team.
1: Next, per- so that was go your, to your... seven. Yeah, my go seven. To your seven. This was kind of interesting for me to pick. I put Cam Kitchen at seven. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to put him any higher than seven. But I think... On that defensive line, a defense that was so heavily touted for their run-stopping ability, it's easy to jump to the readers, the Ray Jones and the Adderley. But Cam Kitchen was a huge part of that run-stopping defense. I mean, last year, we knew Bilal Nichols, if it was a run play, he was getting the tackle.
0: Mm -hmm. Or even Blaine 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 Woodson was really good too.
1: And this year, it was almost his show. And I think he did enough with it to make his impact felt. So I think they're going to miss him. I think they won't have as big as a hole to replace him because not necessarily that the defensive line position is expendable. but and they have some names there. Right. They're not the your meat and potatoes of your defense. So I think Cam Kitchen at seven is a fair place for him. They're going to miss him, and they're going to wish they had him. But we lost an NFL player in Bilal Nichols, and we still were a top-tier t- defense.
0: I also have Cam Kitchen at 7. Yeah. Um, And the defensive line will still be a strength for Delaware because Caleb Ashworth returns, Frank Burton returns, Brandon Hall returns, and they have a couple other younger guys who didn't get a big crack at it this year that will get more opportunities next year. And Rocco talked about that Wednesday and that they're moving guys now from the line backwards to fill in places along the defense because they view the defensive line moving forward as the strength of this defensive unit. And because of that, we might also see a little bit more four down, like we did see against James Madison in the playoff game. But Cam Kitchen, to me, was the best of those guys all season long. And it's a significant impact, significant impact loss for this Delaware team. Going to number eight on my list, I went with Malcolm Brown, the safety. Um, Played a lot of corner in his career, was one of the guys kind of left on an island there, was maybe up and down at corner, was fine at safety didn't really hear his name a lot, which means he wasn't getting gashed. He wasn't making uh, exceptionally poor plays back there. Also wasn't really making highlight plays. Didn't have a turnover this season. But overall, guy who started for better part of three seasons, he he should get on this list at the bottom.
1: He was my last one out. Okay. He was the one that I was debating whether him were number 10, whatever I want to put in. Um, we're on number eight, right? Yeah, you're number eight. Charles Scarf. I had Charles Scarf at eight. Um, yeah, talked about him. We're
0: ranking the top 10 departing seniors on Delaware's football team. This is Blue Hen Sports Cage, 91.3. On my list at number nine, we talked about him earlier. He was your number two. I slipped him to nine, Ray Jones. I think he's in that same category with with Malcolm Brown as a guy who gets a lot of credit for being a multiple year starter. Um, But I do have some question marks about at the end of the season.
1: My number nine was Kanai Kane. Um, I think with the new coming of Lee, I'm more confident in the Delaware running game than I have been before. But I do agree that a player that requires so much offensive prowess to put on a successful play like Dejan Lee does, you need the offensive line to specifically cut holes out for him. Kanai Kane... They you tell your offensive line to push forward, and he'll do the rest. Yeah, Lee, you can't have your if offensive the line. If the defense do that at play.
0: blows up the play, Kane can still maybe get you three or four. Right, Lee, maybe is not gonna, one event. Yeah, he's not going to get you
1: much. So I think they're going to miss Kanai Kane for that third and one, first and goal on the goal that line play against Albany, where, where he, he just he can, barreled. He people. does that
0: spin and pushes the next guy and gets yeah. the first down.
1: That's going to be a place they miss Kanai Kane.
0: At 10, final spot on my list, I went with Vinny Papali, the wide receiver. So he was I, the second think, one I think he'll be missed. I do think they have some talent at wide receiver, though, that will be capable of replacing him. You think about Gene Coleman, a guy who's gotten opportunities a lot in the last couple of seasons, but some of the younger guys, Tylan McElhenney, Thyrick Pitts, who redshirted this season, big guys who are also quick and explosive. They'll have more opportunities next season to... Fill in for what Vinny Papali did. But he gets a lot of credit in my book for coming back from the multiple injuries towards ACL in that William and Mary game a couple years ago. And the next day, the coach is fired, has to reprove himself to a new coaching staff while returning from injury. Does so to some extent last year, but was still a little bit banged up. Comes into this season fully healthy, establishes a rapport with Pat Kehoe, becomes a go to option on third down, had that big touchdown catch against Elon. And a really nice touchdown catch against Lafayette in week two. He Took a big step forward. So he makes it to my list at number 10.
1: He was my second one out. Um, I didn't love leaving him off the list because of how much he brought to this team alongside Joe Walker. This was not a superior passing attack. But in the beginning of the year, when we were putting out stats for Pat Kehoe, he was a big reason why Pat Kehoe was doing that well. Number 10, I went with an offensive lineman. I put Mario Farinella... At 10 i considered him yeah because one you kind of had to put an offensive lineman on there and two he really was a good blanket for pat Kehoe. you can see that with a lefty quarterback that's a place where you're gonna need somebody and farinella was there i thought he was a textbook offensive lineman didn't do anything flashy but gave Pat Kehoe enough time in his position to do what he needed to do.
0: And he was versatile. Started the season as a guard, moved to center midway through the season. I considered him for my list. He'd probably be considered the first guy out for me. The offensive line, latter part of the season, a lot of people had questions about the pass protection that Kehoe was afforded. I think, like we discussed earlier, part of that goes to Kehoe and his immobility, which isn't his fault with the partially torn ACL, but it's the reality that he was not moving around the pocket very well. The best offensive lineman this season was Mario Farinella. Yep. And and for that reason, it's tough to, to ask a guy who hasn't played a whole lot to step up to that level, to an all-CAA level, and that's what Mario Farinella offered this team. Was there anybody else that did not make our top ten list that you considered as you were putting yours together.
1: So the first thing I did was I went through and I pulled all of the seniors that I thought, even for a blink, that they could make a top 10 list, and then I narrowed it down. The other two I have written, Jethro Pepe and Noah Beh, mm-hmm. I don't really think they made any case to be even close to the list. My first no. two out were Malcolm Brown and Vinny Papali, and then I think the gap between them and Jethro Pepe and Noah Bae is is good so nice enough that they probably wouldn't get on it.
0: I thought for a brief moment about Tenny Adawusi, the corner. Yeah. But eh, he, he's not one of the, he's probably in the middle of the pack as far as CAA corners. So I think there's, there are guys on this team that can step into that role next season. I I should have thought about Frank Rago. It, mm-hmm. it just, it just didn't cross my mind yeah. thinking about special teams. But if I revised my list, he'd probably make it in at the back end and I maybe would leave Vinny Papali off of it. Yeah. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast.